Welcome to another episode of BHP Book Club. I am your host, Kelly Morgan. Today I'm speaking with author Vic Ferrari. Now, Vic has written a series of books about his work as a New York police officer, as well as a New York police detective. He's got five wonderful books. I love their titles. Grand Theft Auto, The NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, NYPD Law and Disorder, Dickhead and Debaucheries, and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. Vic was the perfect guest. His stories are hilarious. I cannot wait for you to meet him and and go get one of his books. You will enjoy every single story. Let's just get right to it. Welcome to the book club, author Vic Ferrari. Vic, thank you so much for being a member of the book club and being on the podcast. How are you? Hi, Kelly. I'm great. You? I am doing fantastic. You know, I, I'm i always excited when, when authors come on the show and, and want to promote their books. I'm, I'm always gra- very grateful and very thankful. And you got a, you've got a few books out there. How many books do you have? I have five. Four are uh, themed about my NYPD career. And I wrote a, a comedy early on. So are they all fiction? Here's the thing. When I I had an interesting career. Um, I'm lucky enough that I was an NYPD cop and a detective for 20 years. And people find what I did interesting. So that enabled me to, to start a second career with writing. When I set forth to write these books, I, I, I did, the two things I wanted to accomplish was I didn't want to get anybody divorced. And I didn't want to embarrass anybody or get anybody in trouble. They are tell-all books, but what I do is I change the name. There's no one's name. I change the locations, the precincts, the time periods, the ranks. But these stories and some of these embarrassing situations have happened. So it's truth cloaked in just trying to protect. If you've ever watched the end of a, a t- when it says no persons in this show have been depicted, you, you know what I mean? It's almost like a disclaimer. Right, right. Okay. So all most of the, you said four of the books are about your career as a New York police officer, correct? Yes. And one you said is a comedy. Yes. So how did you decide to become a writer? Is it something that, you know, you always wanted to do? And then when you did, when you retired, you figured you'd write these books or just what, why did you decide to write and publish these books? Well, it, it, it boiled down to, I retired relatively young. I, I started in my police career at 21 years old and I retired at 41 and I had too much time on my hands. And, you know, all my friends always tell me, oh, you, you, you got all these great stories. You should you should write them down. You, you should write a book. And I said, I don't know. And then I said, you know what? Maybe I can do this. And what I started doing was outlining stories and then filling them in. And then before you knew it, I had enough for one book and then two books. And then here we are five books later. So it just it just was um, I just had too much time on my hands and I just decided to do it. It's not like, you know, I had a police career and I always said I was going to write a book. It just kind of organically happened. So did you self-publish your books? I did. I self-published all my books. 
And so what was that like? Was I mean, did you do a lot of research before you published it? Did you just kind of dive into it? What was that like? Um, a little of both. And I think with each book that I've done, I've learned a little bit more that's made my life easier. It's enabled me to sell more books because when you self-publish, okay, the first thing, if you go Google self-publishing, all these companies pop up and everybody wants to take your money. Give us 5,000, give us 3,000, give us 10,000. We're gonna, we're gonna assign you a ghostwriter or you give us your manuscript. We're gonna market it. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. They're gonna take your money. They might give you a book, but you're not gonna be happy with it. So what I bet on myself, what I did was I, I, I write a book. I, I have my manuscript. I then I, I, I seek out a copy editor then after I get my manuscript back, I send it to a proofread. Then I get it, uh, um, I get it formatted, for upload for Amazon Kindle, and then um, book cover. Uh, that, that's one of the most important things. And a lot of people, I see people with book covers and, and they don't really look right and kind of look cheesy. Unfortunately, people do uh, judge a book by its cover. So I, I found this company called ebooklaunch.com in Canada, and they're great. I mean, all my book covers, I mean, I've always been happy with them. They're about 500 bucks for um, ebook cover and paperback with the, the back jacket. So when Amazon gets it, um, you shouldn't skimp on that. But yeah, each book I've learned a little bit more about the marketing aspect, the cover, the editing. You know, I got burned once with an editor and I'll never let that happen again. So each book has evolved and I've got it now. What was the first book? Uh, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. <laughs> it's about the ridiculous thing people do to shorten their life expectancy. And a lot of the things in the book I've done. And uh, that's one thing I don't spare myself in my books. If I've done something stupid, it's gonna be in there because people, people don't like phonies. You know, if you're holier than now, People are like, oh, I can't take this guy. You know, if you show them that you're human and you've done ridiculous things in your life and you put yourself in an embarrassing situation, people tend to be more kind to you. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the first book. And when did that book publish? I published that one in 2016. And then the most recent book was published when? Uh, just a couple of months ago in May. That's NYPD Lauren Disorder. So let's talk about the first your, your your most recent book. Let's talk okay. about that one. Then, then we'll work our way back because I'm interested in the first book and how that came into being. So we'll save time for that. But let's go to the one that just came out. Tell me about that book. And, and so you've gotten all these stories. Is this a, a book where two stories and you've changed the names and the locations? Um, tell me the title again. NYPD Lauren Disorder. And so let's talk about that. So how did that book come into being? Is that a continuation of all the stories that you have? Yeah, NYPD Lauren Disorder is things that have gone wrong in my career or have gone wrong in other cops' careers. And on the cover, I can show you, it's got a picture of a cop scratching his head with a police car that's got front end damage and a bad guy jumping out of the back seat, which there's a story in there about that. It didn't happen to me, it happened to a guy that I worked with. But it's, it's about the ridiculous things that have gone wrong. And like the opening chapter is called Embarrassing Moments. And the book starts off with, and this is a true story. Um, I had an arrest, it was late at night. Um, across the street from Bronx Central Booking is, was a newly built um, shopping mall with a new food court. 
I went in there to get something to eat. It was about nine o'clock at night. There's nobody really inside except a couple of workers. And I got to use the restroom. So I go to the bathroom in this food court and I take off my gun belt and I hang it up on the toilet stall. And I'm about to use the bathroom and I hear the door of the bathroom kick in and I hear probably six to eight teenagers yelling and screaming and turning on the sinks and hitting the hand dryers, boys being boys, just carrying on. So I'm in a vulnerable position with my pants down to the ground and my gun belt hanging on, on the back of the bathroom stall. And I said, you know what? I should really start getting dressed. Something, this, this isn't gonna end well for me. And I, just as I looked up, I look up to the lights above, I see a teenager, he's in the next stall standing on the toilet. He's hanging over my stall and he's trying to grab my gun belt off the back of the door. So I jump up to grab him. He grabs onto my gun belt. Now I'm in the fight of my life with my pants down to the floor, fighting, I'm in, my, I'm in uniform, my pants down to my floor, fighting this kid who's got my gun belt. I'm punching him, he's pulling the gun belt, we're playing tug of war. He lets go of the gun belt. I'm trying to drag him over the uh, the aluminum wall. His friends rush into the next stall. They grab him, and now it's tug of war over the over the wall, right? He falls over. I, he got he was so sweaty that he went over the wall and crashed into his friend. I pull up my pants. I put my gun belt on. I get my uniform ready. I run out the door. They're gone. I go into the food court. There's a 300-pound uh, porter with one of those floor buffing machines. I run up to him. I go, did you see a bunch of teenagers run out of here? He shuts off the thing and he burps, looks up to the sky and goes, no. So what was I going to do at that point? Call the police? <laughs> if, the, if, the, if the precinct cops came and I told them that story, I'd be the laughing stock of the Bronx. So that story is sometimes you just got to suck it up. And I basically kept that story to myself for 30 years. Yeah. And I mean, there's more to that story because the reason I was in there was I, I locked up three guys with four kilos of cocaine on a car stop that just, it just was dumb luck. But um, yeah, there's more to that story, but basically it starts off with embarrassing moments of things that have happened to me. That that sounds absolutely funny. Um, I can imagine some of your other stories because they're all not all about you, about other people that you've worked with too, oh, yeah. right? All right, so that's that's the book that just most recently published. What's the one before that? Uh, the one before that is Grand Theft Auto, uh, stories from the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. I worked in auto theft as a detective doing organized crime for the last 10 years of my NYPD career. So that book has a lot of stories about chop shops, um, organized uh, theft rings, um, there's homicides in there. There's stories about how to protect your car from thieves, what happens to your car when it gets stolen, when it goes to a chop shop. There's a case in there where um, cars being stolen and exported out of the country. Um, you know, it, it's anything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, we're afraid to ask. So my question about auto theft is when you report your car stolen, does anybody look for it? In New York City, no. Um, what winds up happening? Okay, so when I was a cop in the in the eighties and nineties, New York City had, and it, it, this sounds crazy, but in New York City was averaging one hundred and fifty thousand stolen vehicles a year in the five boroughs of New York. So it was like shooting fish in the barrel. I mean, we just we just used to, we we would find you know kids drug addicts, professional car thieves. I mean, it was just so out of control and cars are stolen for so many reasons. But to answer your question, no, they take the report. 
Um, you might get a call, asked a few more questions. Uh, a clerk or a cop um, enters your vehicle identification number and license plate into the system that if a, another police officer or law enforcement agency runs the plate of the vehicle identification number that it won't come back stolen. If um, your car isn't recovered, well, if you have uh, comprehensive insurance, fire and theft, if your car isn't recovered within 30 days, the insurance company cuts you a check. And if the car turns up after that, they, they claim ownership and then they sell it at auction. I always wondered what happened. I always wondered what happened. Okay, so that book came out when? Uh, last year. Last year. 2020. Okay, so that's 2020, 2021. What was the book that came out prior? <laughs> the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. And tell me, tell me more about that one. NYPD <laughs> uh, Flying Circus. This that that's a lot of colorful characters, and so there was a guy we used to work with. We used to call him El Diablo because he was the devil. I mean, the guy must have had the Prince of Darkness working working with him. I mean, he would get himself into situations and nothing would happen to him. Anyone else would get fired or suspended or, or, or deep trouble. So what he did one time was he was um, he was drinking in a bar near Central Park, talking to two women. And uh, over by Central Park, you have the horse and carriage rides with the guy with the top hat, and the horse and buggy. And you pay $300 to get a 15 minute ride through Central Park. So anyway, the horse and carriage guy parks the horse and carriage in front of the bar and goes in to use the bathroom. So El Diablo sees him walking in and he says, he he knows what he does for a living. He goes, in front of the two girls, he goes, hey, uh, you mind if I take Seabiscuit for a ride? So the horse and carriage operator goes, yeah, sure, buddy. And he, and he goes to the bathroom. So El Diablo tells the girl, he's an old friend of mine. Come on, we're gonna go for a ride. This drunken NYPD member with two women gets into the horse and carriage, they remove the blocks and the horse starts going. Well, the horse quickly figures out that there's an idiot behind the wheel of the, the horse. You know, he knows that he doesn't know what he's doing. So the horse is like, screw this. I'm going to go back to the barn and get some oats. So the horse and carriage now isn't listening to El Diablo. And it starts taking off through Central Park and it's going through red lights. Okay. And it, now it's being like this reckless, abandoned, out of control stagecoach, right? So the women are screaming, El Diablo can't control the horse and carriage as it's hit Central Park. As he's entering Central Park, two other horse and carriage operators so go, wait a minute, there's Billy's horse and carriage being operated by an idiot, it's stolen. They get into a chase. Now you've got like a, um, what would you call it? A chariot race through Central Park. And the, the other horse and carriage operators kind of boxed it in and slowed the horse down finally. Well, the horse stops, the two women are traumatized. They just jump out and run through Central Park in different directions. They wanted no part of this, right? The, the, the horse and carriage driver shows up. He's irate and upset. El Diablo goes, I'll go to an ATM machine. I'll give you $500, we'll call it even. The guy goes, fine. Went to an ATM, took out $500, gave it to the horse and carriage operator, and he walked away from that one. <laughs> That would have been something to see. Wow. There's more of that story because the two women were sex workers. <laughs> so there's a lot more of that story, but I'm just kind of giving you bad bones. <laughs> okay. So, and then number four of the New York series is what? Uh, you know what? I 
write so many damn books. NYPD through the looking glass. Stories from inside America's largest police department. And so give me some idea of what that one's about. That one's got a lot of characters too, people doing ridiculous things. So there was a guy we used to work with and uh, again, not the smartest guy in the world. And if there's one thing about the NYPD, if you ever lose your gun, your badge, your ID card, you lose 30 vacation days and you get put on a year of disciplinary probation. So needless to say, everybody takes that very seriously. Well, this guy lived in a kind of a crummy neighborhood and he didn't want to, he wanted to go out and have a couple of drinks. He didn't want to bring his gun with him. So he hid his gun in his apartment in the one place he didn't think a burglar would look, his oven. He goes out, comes back four hours, nine beers later. He's hungry, wants to make some frozen pizzas. He doesn't take the, he forgets about the gun in the oven. He preheats the oven to 425 and goes in the next room. Well, when you put a gun in an oven with live rounds in it, they start exploding. So his gun starts exploding and firing bullets through the through the kitchen in the next room. He has to crawl out of the, his apartment on his hands and knees and call 911 on himself. And our emergency service unit had to show up there and safeguard the apartment and then get the, the exploded gun out of the oven. And that too is a true story. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Who is a true story? All of the books sound Wonderful, but tell me about this book that's not an NYPD book, the first book that you ever wrote, and how you went to go write this book. Well, I was afraid to write an NYPD book because I was always afraid my peers would get upset. So I, 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 I wrote Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die because I've done a lot of ridiculous things in life that I shouldn't be around. My younger brother should definitely not be around from when we were children, the stuff that he used to pull. Um, it's just the things playing with fireworks, running with the bulls in Spain, but it's my sarcastic take on things. And again, a lot of the things in these books I've done, I mean, I mean, there's embarrassing things there too. I'm terrified of anesthesia. I mean, it's just, I, I loathe it. I'm afraid of it. So I go into great detail. I got a colonoscopy, a colonoscopy awake and they wheel me in and there's like eight nurses in there. And I turn to the doctor, I go, what the hell is this? He goes, they can't believe you're doing it awake. You mind if they hang out? I'm like, no, go ahead, put the tube, I go, go ahead, put the tube in my head. So let's get this over with. You're the only person I know that has wanted to do a colonoscopy awake. I didn't, I didn't want to do it. It was, I had to get it done. And I just took it upon myself not to do the anesthesia. I also um, have done an endoscopy awake, which the endoscopy was worse than the colonoscopy awake, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. So you have these five wonderful books all available on Amazon. Are you working on anything right now? Yeah, I am. I'm writing a book right now, tentatively called Catholic High School Diaries. It's about growing up in the Bronx. And, you know, my we weren't a religious family. We were Catholic, but we weren't a religious family. And um, I'll never forget, my dad in eighth grade said, um, you're going to Catholic high school next year. And I go, huh? I go, we don't even go to mass. Like, why, why do I got to go to Catholic high school? And he goes, because you're a clown. And he goes, if, I, if you go to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. He goes, you need a little toughening up. And uh, I'm glad I did. At first, I fought it. I was nervous, but it, it was, um, it shaped who I am. 
it, it taught me to suck a lot of things up. And I met a lot of lifelong friends that all became cops. My Catholic high school was like the Penn State of linebackers. Every year, 40 or 50 guys became cops and firemen. So it was kind of like a civil service factory, that high school. Interesting. So in your books, your NYPD books, they talk about you as a as an officer with the uniform and then as a detective, correct? Yes. So when you were a detective, what divisions did you work in? I worked in the narcotics division. Uh, I buy and bust operations. I work with confidential informants. I, I wasn't an undercover per se, but I have purchased drugs on duty. Um, and then when I went to the auto crime division, like I said, it, it was um, organized rings, the mafia, uh, Russian gangs, Polish gangs, um, you, know, you name it, whoever was stealing cars and was organized, we were on them. And if you ever saw the movie Heat, it's mm -hmm. kind of like that. Like if these guys are doing nights, you're doing nights. I guess that's why I sleep so poorly now. But um, yeah, we were up all hours of the night and day just chasing these guys. And, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I had a, I had a wonderful career. And you know, I know a lot of people um, uh, know or think they know New York police departments because of all the television shows, right? So are any of the television shows even close to how it really is? Now, <laughs> the, the closest show on television, no, wait, hold on a second. I, my dog is, no, go lay down, come on. The closest show on television, Law and Order, I haven't watched Law and Order in years, but Law and Order was pretty close that, from a detective's standpoint, there's the crime, the detectives come, they start asking questions, they start talking to people. The relationship with the district attorney's office, which isn't always, it doesn't always, it isn't always nice. Um, Law and Order is pretty good as far as getting it right. Yeah, I always wondered about that. I think that um, sometimes we get um, caught up in the television shows that we think that's how it really is. And yeah, and that's not even close. And, and you're 100% right. And that's what a lot of times um, alters jurors' minds because they watch things on television, right? And then they, they, they see something on television, they think it's supposed to be a certain way. And defense attorneys are no fool. They, they know this. So they'll start bringing things up, kind of leaning towards, well, you know, when you see on TV, why, why would he do this? Well, there's a reason for it. Like, okay, so you see on television and stuff like a crime scene or something or someone's been raped or bloody clothes they they're putting it in a plastic bag they're, they're, they're putting it in a plastic envelope well yeah evidence does get in new york put in a plastic evidence bag but if it's got to be tested for anything serology blood that goes in a brown paper bag like i can remember going across the street to a supermarket and getting a couple of shopping bags you know what I mean? From the bottom of the thing that haven't been touched and putting bloody clothes or something in a brown paper bag. So, you know, you go to trial and, and you got a defense attorney saying, why would you put it in a brown paper bag? You know, and it's like, and then the, the, the prosecutor will explain why, but people see it on television. Well, no, it's always in a plastic bag. What was he doing? What is he, a clown going to McDonald's and getting a brown paper bag, right? So, you know what I mean? It, it, they paint things a certain way. You want to hear a good story from one of my books that I think you'll get a kick out of? I do, yes. Okay, this is from Grand Theft Auto. So early, so I'm in auto crime and they're stealing these Land Cruisers. The Land Cruisers, this is the early 90s, uh, late 90s. The Land Cruisers are getting stolen and 
we know they're not turning up, so we know they're getting shipped out of, out of the country. And uh, I'm up in Washington Heights. I'm driving around, driving around. I see a brand new Land Cruiser with in a parking lot. So I run the plate. It comes back stolen two, three days earlier. I go into the parking lot. I ask the attendant. He basically doesn't know anything. I have the car. I have the truck dusted for prints. And what was unusual was I found a hunting magazine in this Land Cruiser and a dog crate, a large dog crate. I didn't think anything of it. I dust the car for prints. And here's another thing. Interiors of vehicles, it's very difficult to get fingerprints. Unless it's glass or a smooth surface, most porous sur surfaces, the old fashioned way with the pixie dust, very difficult to get prints. Now there's other ways to get prints off of things, but just for, like for a stolen car and you know, it's not a car jacket, it's just a stolen car. They're not gonna go too deep. We didn't go too deep in it. But anyway, long story short, the evidence technician lifted some prints. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. So, you know, but again, the prints could come back to the owner, could come back to the owner's wife, could come back to the garage attendant. So I didn't think nothing of it. I submit the prints and uh, I call the owner. I tell him where to pick up his truck and he goes, did you find my dog? And I said, I saw a crate back there. What are you talking about? He goes, my wife and I were in the country. Who's an attorney, wealthy man, lived, lived in Midtown. He goes, I just double parked my truck for a second. We've taken out the luggage. I left the keys in the ignition and the motor running. Some guy jumped in it and took off. I go, did you get a look at the guy? He goes, no. He goes, but he goes, I don't care about the truck. He goes, if you could find my dog at the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay Retriever. Very rare. I had, to, I had to Google it to find out what kind of dog it was. So I says, I, I says, I, I'll, I'll see what I can do. I says, but I doubt it. So my friend, a childhood friend, works in the fingerprint unit. And I call him up. I go, can you put a rush on this? Because normally when you submit fingerprints, it goes in a pecking order. So homicides, rapes, burglaries, robberies, stolen car, that thing could be sitting around a week before it gets submitted. So this is the guy I went to Catholic high school with, I was the best man in his friend. He goes, all right, all right, I'll take care of it. He puts the prints in. Two days later, he calls me back. He goes, oh, what a nasty little street urchin this guy is, right? Guy looked like Al Pacino in, um, like just in, when in Serpico, like he had greasy black hair and a beard, and career criminal, hadn't really, uh, you know, he robbed a bank once and got caught and did seven years, but it was all petty anti stuff except for the bank robbery. So I put on him what's called a wanted card. So it's not a warrant, but a wanted card means if you get arrested, a fax or an email gets sent to that detective's office and it says, your guy just got arrested, go get him. Now, if you don't get there in time, he can be released. So I got the thing at like 10 o'clock at night. I call my partner up, we do an early shift, we go into the courthouse and this guy's getting released. He's walking out of the courthouse and we grab him and he's pissed, put handcuffs on him. He's a heroin addict, he's starting to go through withdrawal. I bring him into the precinct and I've got photos of the stolen truck and I go, have you ever seen this truck before? No. You ever touched this truck before? No. Asking him all these questions. Finally, I says, well, how are your fingerprints in the car if you've never been in this truck? I says, look, the guy's name was Angel. I go, look, Angel, here's the deal. I says, you're going to do about three years upstate. And I think he had AIDS and he didn't look like he had too much longer to go. I says, I'll tell you what. You tell me what happened to that dog. I says, and I'll see if I can do something for you. So he goes, there's more to this story, but he goes, I sold the dog. I said, where? He goes, well, I can take you to the block. I, I don't know. I sold it to a woman for 50 bucks. I said, okay. 
We go up into the neighborhood. He's sitting in the back seat. We're sharing stories about life and stuff. Here comes this woman walking the dog. He goes, that's her. So we get the dog back. And then he finds out that the dog is a $7,000 dog. And he goes ballistic. Are you fucking kidding me? He goes, I can't have gotten more for the dog. He goes, in the truck. And it was just like, he was just like such a poor, I almost felt bad for him. The bank he robbed, the dye pack blew up in his face coming out of the bank. The cops caught him like cleaning the pain out of his eyes. Like, and it, he was like Midas to reverse this guy. Anything he touched turned to crap. So anyway, we got the dog back. The owner was thrilled. I talked to the district attorney. I think we got him six months on Rikers instead of going upstate for three years. So everybody was happy. The dog was happy. The owner was happy. The guy that stole the truck was happy. So there's stories like that in there of some of my cases. Wow. Vic, I got to tell you, the books sound wonderful. They're all available on Amazon. Tell me the name of all the books one more time. Okay. My first book is Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. NYPD Through the Looking Glass, Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and NYPD Law and Disorder. And like you said, they're all on Amazon. They're all $10. They make great Christmas gifts. There are 250 pages apiece, approximately. And you can pick up my books and just go to any chapter. It's not like you're heavily invested. It's are short stories about things that have happened in my career. Do you have a website or an author page? I don't. I, I have a... Um, a Twitter page at VicFerrari50 if somebody wants to reach out to me and option my book to make me a millionaire. Fantastic. Well, we'll hope that happens for you. Vic, thank, thank you, you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. When you get your next book out there, uh, book number six, you're going to have to come back and share Absolutely. It anytime, anytime you need me as a guest, I'm here. You got it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for listening to another episode of BHP Book Club. I have been your host, Kelly Morgan. I just wrapped up with author Vic Ferrari as we talked about his five books about his adventures being a New York City police officer as well as a New York City detective. His books again, and I'll read them for you again because I love the titles, Grand Theft Auto, The NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, NYPD Law and Disorder, Dickheads and Debauchery, and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. All the books are available on Amazon. Go check them out. If you are an author and you would like to promote your book and be the, new, the newest member to the book club, all you have to do is go to the website, brightheadedpublishing.com, go to the contact section, drop me a line, we'll connect, and I'll make sure that you are on the book club and you are on the podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. I am truly grateful. I could not do this without you. Next week, I'll have another author, but until then, keep writing.